Good morning. Glad to be here with you this morning. It was very strange last week to be away from here. I uh, went with, to Texas with my two young sons and, and uh, to be driving back and not be here. And so uh, realize how much you miss that when, you're, when that doesn't happen very often not to be here. So glad to be back with you this morning. And so uh, as we begin today, I just want to uh, I'm gonna read to you a definition. I want you to think about this. Uh, Maybe how this pertains to you. Uh, Maybe it doesn't, but I I would venture to guess that most of us, this describes at least part of our life at different times. But uh, the the definition is this mental or emotional strain or tension resulting from adverse or demanding circumstances. Mental or emotional strain or tension resulting from adverse or demanding circumstances. That's actually the definition of stress. Uh, if, if that rings a bell at all with you, that it, where you're struggling with things mentally or emotionally because of what's going on around you. A, g- a good way to know if that's the case is maybe uh, you're worrying a lot. You have anxiety. There's things that are really bothering you. Uh, a good indicator is, is things that keep you awake at night because you're thinking about them a lot. Uh, things that are swirling on around you. Uh, I, I would venture to guess that if that's the case... That most often that stress and that worry and the anxiety in our life uh, comes from relationships. Almost always coming from relationships that are going on around us and directly linked to those. And so we could say a whole lot of different reasons that cause that, that brings that, that, that keeps us awake, that causes us to worry about different things. Uh, And I think if we're honest and we went around the room, that would apply to all of us in varying degrees, probably even right now today, and certainly so at different points in our life more so. And so we think about that, that that, uh, feeling of anxiety or stress that comes on us. You know, I think of uh, things that really cause that in relationships. One of those, uh, I would say for me, and I would say, I would venture to guess for a lot of you as, as well as when uh, you're at odds with someone in your life or maybe things aren't going real well or maybe they think poorly of you or someone has talked poorly about you, that that can bring stress and anxiety in your life. It can bring uh, is the definition mental or emotional strain when that's going on. And so for each one of us, I'm sure at different points we deal with that or, or maybe it's an issue of uh, people's perception of you or maybe you have uh, at different times. You can be self-conscious because of what other people might think, whether it be your job or your friends or your family or whatever's going on. And so each one of us, I think, can relate to that, at least in some degree or another. And I bring that up because as we go to Psalm chapter four this morning, we're going to see what the Bible often refers to uh, King David, one of the great characters of the Bible, uh, a man that God refers to as a man after his own heart. Uh, David is a is a giant of the faith. We often look to David and, and, and what he says and what he does. He wrote so much of the Psalms. And we're going to see that David is in great distress. He's in great distress and it's related to relationships and things that are going on around him. And so as we look at this today, just I just start that way because uh, I hope that we listen clearly to what God's word says, because I think this is so vitally relevant for all of us. In different ways, we deal with stress and anxiety and things that come into our life and often related to relationships and how do we deal with those. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Before before we walk through that uh, passage together in Psalm 4, let's pray and then we're going to look at it together. But let's ask God to bless this time and just be leading and guiding us. Lord, we thank you 
for your word. You thank you that you've given it to us. You've preserved it, that you've, you've shown us how we can know you through your inspired word. And we thank you for that. I pray this morning that we, as we open it and we consider these things, that your spirit would lead and guide and teach us, that you would apply what you want us to see to our hearts this morning, that you would show us uh, just the rest and the joy that is found in you, that we can, uh, uh, despite circumstances, that we can have this great rest and this joy. And I pray that we'd see that more clearly as we open your word. We just confess this morning without you leading and guiding us in your spirit, we are hopelessly lost. So we pray that you would come and you would be the teacher here this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And so as we think about this idea, this problem here, this distress, the things, the worry, the things that David's dealing with, that we often deal with and what's going on. There's three things I want us to think about. First, what is the root of the problem as we see it here? And I'm going to venture to guess that the root of the problem as we see it here is the root of the problem a lot of times in our own life as well. Not always, but a lot of times it is. And so what is the root of the problem we see here with King David? And then secondly, what are the answers that God's word gives us that puts forward on how to deal with us? Because there's a lot that it says in this passage that helps us with that. So what is the root of the problem and what are the answers that are put forward? And then lastly, what are the outcome when we actually grasp what the scriptures are telling us here? Because the last couple of verses point us to what it looks like that, that we would come to when we do that. So what is the problem? What are the answers? And then what is the outcome? And so let's just consider the root of the problem here in Psalm 4. So look at verses 1 and 2, if you would, with me. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? And how long will you love vain words? And seek after lies. And so just as I started this morning and just as I begin the stress and the distress, you see it in David and the way he's calling out, please, God, hear me. You've answered me in my distress before I need you right now. And then in verse two, he tells us why he says, how long shall my honor be turned into shame and how long uh, will you love vain words and seek after lies? And he's talking about the people that are around him. And so what you see with David as he crawls out and the root of the problem that we see here is people are talking bad about him and they're telling lies and they're saying untruths about who David is and what he's doing. And he's feeling the weight of that. He's feeling the struggles of that coming. And it's understandable when we think about that. Right? How do you feel when someone's talking bad about you and what they're saying is not true? It's a difficult situation to deal with. It's hard to get your head around that. It's, it's difficult in those moments. It stinks when you hear people saying that or doing that. And I just want to ask the question, what do you want to do when you hear that? When you hear say, someone say something that's not true, what is your immediate reaction? I think for most of us, it's to defend ourselves. I want to set the record straight. I want to let people know. And it's difficult in those cases. I can remember working in a job uh, right out of school. I worked for an architecture firm in Houston, Texas. And it was, uh, I was thankful to have a job. I'll say it that way. It was difficult in a lot of ways. It was not a job I really enjoyed. And I remember working in this job uh, for a couple of years. And I remember one day being, uh, part of the reason it was difficult is I worked on floodgates for almost two years. If you don't know what a floodgate is, you don't want to know, basically. You just don't really care. It's really boring. It was putting gates to, to, to uh, put hospitals in Houston so floods, waters couldn't come in. 
And that's what I worked on. Details of flood. Yeah, it, your faces of like, oh, yes, it's exactly how it felt. It was not good. And part of the reason was my boss that worked was directly over me in charge of this project was terrible. He was never there. He hardly did anything. Every time I needed something, I could never find them. He was never around. And so it was really, really frustrating. And I remember being in a meeting one day with one of the heads, one of the partners in the firm. And he was he was explaining some details with us and some different things and how we needed to draw. Them. And right before he walked in, I was in there with a guy I worked with and then my boss, the, the really bad one. And then the big guy comes in and he starts telling us well, right before he walked in, this guy that was a source of a lot of frustration to me had just explained the detail and how to draw it and what to do and all these things. And the guy comes in and he tells us. Uh, Now I'm going to show you this detail, the exact same thing this guy just says, and it's totally different. He's like, nobody in this firm knows how to draw it, so I'm going to show you. And so as he says it, I smile, because my boss just told me how to do it completely wrong. And this guy turns around and he looks at me and he goes, you think this is funny? And he just lays into me. Just, what do you think? Do you think this is a joke? And he goes on and on. And so the talk around the office for like a couple weeks were like, did you hear Tom just lost it on JP? Over and over. And I was so frustrated because I didn't really do anything wrong. And I was so frustrated because it really could trace it back to what my boss did wrong and what he told me was wrong. And and so I felt completely just this is so unfair. And and I remember just walking around the office that way for weeks thinking that's because I'd have people that were my age that were kind of my position. They walk up and they'd be, hey, I heard the boss really yelled at you. And you're like, yes, he did. But it wasn't my fault. You know, you wanted to say it's not my fault. And so oftentimes what happens, that's the way we feel. It's the same thing you see David saying in verse 2 when he says, How long shall my honor be turned into shame? He said, People are telling lies and they're saying these things around me and I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated because how long will my honor be turned into shame? Now we honor, most of the times we don't say our honor being turned into shame. That's not usually the language we use. But part of it is, is we want people to think highly of us. Right? I was frustrated because I didn't want the people I worked with to think I wasn't working hard or that I was doing dumb things or that there was reason for the boss to yell at me. And so my pride was hurt. And oftentimes that's the case when people are upset with us or they say something about us. We want to speak up and we want to vindicate ourselves. We want people to think of us highly. We're worried about our honor. We're worried about acceptance. I want people to like me. I want people to think I'm doing well and I'm not being a jerk or I'm not not doing my work or whatever it may be. And we all do that at different times. We seek approval. We seek acceptance. We want that. And we want people to say you're doing a good job. We don't want people to be upset at us thinking, especially the case when, when it's not truthful, when they don't have the facts, they don't have the fullness of it. That's when it's really difficult. Now, the truth here that we're going to look at is the same when maybe they do have the facts and they're talking poorly about you. Maybe you did do some things that that's why they're talking about you, because the answers here are going to be the same on both sides of that. We still want approval. We still want to answer that. We still want to make amends when we did things wrong because we're seeking approval. And so when we start here at the beginning, what we see with David, and I want us to get this picture, is what is the root of the problem of his distress and his anxiety and his calling out to God is that his honor is being turned into shame. He's not getting the acceptance. People are not speaking truthfully about and that's all of us at different times. Every single one of us struggles with that at different times. And so what I want us to consider are what are the answers that it gives to us in Scripture? What does it tell us in Psalm 4 that can help us 
with those issues when we're struggling with that. And so look at what he says in verse 3 and 4. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. And so he says this picture here that God hears and God sees and God knows what's going on. And then it says, uh, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in our hearts on your bed and be silent. Now, I study that verse a lot and kept going back to that and thinking, and I'm not, I'll be honest, maybe if you've got an answer, come tell me. I don't know why they translated that, be angry and do not sin. When you look at the actual word that's there, it has the connotation of tremble and do not sin. And I think that changes the way you look at that passage. Tremble and do not sin is a little different than be angry, or at least the way I think of it. And so as I thought about that picture, the Hebrew there actually says, tremble before God, tremble and do not sin. What is David getting at when he says that? And I think the picture that's here is when we're frustrated and we're anxious and when people talk poorly about us, justly or unjustly, we want to go and vindicate ourselves. We either want to try to do something to make up for it. Or we want to go and defend our honor and say, no, 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 that's not true and that's not the case. But yet here it says, the Lord hears when I call to him, tremble and do not sin. And he says, go sit on your bed in silence. I go, man, that's some really good practical wisdom when I'm frustrated with somebody else. Stop and realize that God sees all of it and he hears you and he knows what's going on and you tremble before the Lord and you be silent. Another way to say that is, is we stop and we let God be God. God is the judge. He knows all. He made all. He holds all together. And so stop and let God have his rightful place. There's a, there's a verse that I immediately think of when I read this. And it's in 1 Peter chapter 2. And Peter's talking about how we should respond when people are ugly to us. When people attack us. And when they say things and they come at you, how should we respond? And Peter says, you should respond the way Jesus responded. Your perfect example is Jesus. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says this. When he, talking about Jesus, he says, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do you hear what he's saying? He said, even Jesus, as he was being crucified and was being all these slanderous things said about him and people spitting on him and coming at him, Jesus stopped and said, I'm going to entrust myself to him, God the Father who judges justly. I'm going to let God be God even in this. And so when he says here in Psalm 4, be silent and ponder, sit on your bed and just wait. Let God be God. You don't have to vindicate yourself. God knows all of it. He's in control. He's the judge. And so that is wonderful, practical advice in our life. When somebody's talking poorly about you and you want to go set the record straight, and it says, just stop. Stop and let God be God. Let him have his place. That doesn't mean that you don't ever go and confront or talk to somebody or, or, or seek to make amends if you've done something wrong. But I think we could all heed the advice of maybe stopping and, and waiting on the Lord a little bit before we jump in. I certainly could. That, that spoke to me very directly this week as I read that. Just to stop and wait on God before I go and say something. There's this, there's this uh, 
guy in history, of a friend of Martin Luther's that kept coming to mind as I read that. That idea of letting God be God. There was a guy named Philip Melanchthon. He was a friend of Martin Luther, the great reformer. And he worried all the time. Right? Martin Luther said he worried constantly. That was what Philip was known for. He was constantly worrying about everything. And so Luther had this thing that he used to say to his friend Philip over and over. He would look at him and he'd say, let Philip cease to rule the world. And what he was saying is, let God be God. Just stop. You don't have to fix everything. You don't have to be the one that's always setting everything right. Let God be God. That's exactly what Peter says in First Peter. It's exactly what Psalm 4 is saying. Stop and tremble before God and be silent and let God be God. So that's the first step. But then if you're like me, you can say, okay, I will do that and I will stop and I'll wait and I'll wait on God and I'll listen. But then what happens when you do that? Then you stew in it. Right. Well, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to wait. But then in your mind, you're like, oh, but when I tell them, right, that's not what I'm talking about. Right. We can quickly go to that. It's very hard to go. Well, I'm not going to say anything for a couple days. But then each day you're getting more mad. That's not really what we're after. That's not what we, we want to stop and let God be God. But look at the context of what he says here and what he tells us. Go back to verse one. He says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. And then look at what he says there. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And then in verse three, he says, the Lord hears me when I call. And so he starts with, oh, God, please hear me. Hear me in this. But then he says, I know you hear me. I know you hear me because you've delivered me from my distress before. You see that? He says right there, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear me. And then he says, I know you hear me in verse three. He knows he hears them because he's seen God show up at different times. And so when we stop and we wait and we tremble before the Lord, I'd say the second part is then you remember how God has shown up in the past. It's so easy to stew in those things and start to think, oh, this I'm terrible at this. I will just confess There are times when I know I need to go talk to somebody or something needs to be confronted. And in my mind, I go, oh, they're going to get upset and they're going to say this and this might happen. And I play out all these scenarios and then I worry and I have I'm anxious over all these different things that haven't even happened. And then I stop and I pray and then I go to the person and I go, oh, yeah, you're right. Thanks. And then you go, why did I just spend four days worrying over how this might have gone and it didn't even happen? But Jesus actually addressed, he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough for itself. Right? So quit worrying about these things and trust in what God, so many times I've seen God show up and, and basically answer the prayer request before it ever even happened. Right? I'm thinking it may go this way and then you pray about it and then it's fine. And it's great. And there's nothing there and you spend all this time worrying about something you didn't even need to worry about. Or the other side of that, and I don't want to make it sound like we wait on God and we sit before him and then everything will work itself out and you'll never have any issues. That's not true. There are times when it's very, very difficult. But when I remember back to some of the most difficult times, God still shows up. And I may not immediately see it in that moment, but I see how he uses different things in my life and struggles that come. I try to explain this to people and it may not come off completely the way I'd like it to, but I don't know how to say it other than, I, as many of you know, in a couple months, it'll be the seventh anniversary of my brother dying. My best friend in the whole world, 15 months younger than me, right? And he died in a car wreck. And when I think back, on the, I remember the day my mom called me on a Sunday afternoon to tell me, and I remember hearing that, right? 
And you just, you don't know how to process that. And I, know, and I remember not sleeping, but I remember getting up on Monday morning and sitting on my porch and reading the book of Job. And I got to verse, or chapter 38. And God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? I went, and God so clearly said, I am in control right now. Even in this. Even when you don't understand it and when you don't see it. And then I flipped over and I read Revelation 20 and 21. And he's going to remove all suffering and all crying and all pain. And it's all going to go away. And I sat there and I praised him. And I was overwhelmed with the joy of my God. And I try to explain that to people. And it's this weird thing that you say, man, one of the sweetest times I've ever had with God was the day after my brother died. They look at you like, what? And I I tried to tell that to somebody one day and I said, it came out wrong. But basically it was almost like, man, it was great. And they're like, it's not great that my brother died. I miss him every day and I wish he was still here. But great in that God shows up. And he so clearly ministers and loves you and keeps you in those times. And so when you stop and you wait and you ponder and then you remember how God showed up. And you remember how he answered prayers. And the truth is there's going to be times where you're right in the middle of it and you can't see it. You can't quite make ends of it. You go, I don't know how he's working here. I would say that's an important part of us together as a body why we need one another. Because there's times when you go, I don't know how this is going to work, right? And we come together and people minister to you and they speak truth to you and they help you in that. And so the second part I would say is, yes, you stop and you be silent. You tremble knowing that God is the judge, knowing he's in control. And then you remember the times that God has shown up and what he's done. David says right there, you have given me relief in my distress. I know you hear me because I've seen you do it over and over. And so that's the second part. But then the last part here, the last part, the key to all this of really the heart issue, you see it really in verse five, because look at what he says. He says, be angry in verse four and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. And then he says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. When you read that, you can kind of go, well, what's going on there? I find the more I teach the Bible, the more I spend time as a pastor sacrifices in the Old Testament is always this weird kind of foggy thing that people are like, uh, there was blood and some animals and I'm not really sure what else was going on there. And so why in the world would David get to this point and say, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. And that's somehow going to lead us to what he says in verse seven and eight about joy and peace and being able to rest. And you go, well, what's going on there in Old Testament sacrifices? Remembering David's writing a thousand years before Jesus has come. So he's talking very directly about sacrifices and the way that God has given them in the Old Testament. You say, well, what's going on with all that? Sacrifices, big picture, simply were a way that a holy, perfect God could be near a sinful, broken people. God says, I'm going to give you this to teach you who I am and who you are and how you can be near me, even though you don't measure up. That's what he was doing with sacrifices. And so what they would do is they'd come to the temple and you'd bring your sacrifice and you'd bring your animal and you were acknowledging I'm a sinner. And as a sinner, I deserve to be put away from God forever. I deserve death. And you'd take your sacrifice and you'd put your hands on it. You'd say, God's allowing this animal to take my place. And so I can be near God because of the way that he has provided. And so what he was doing is he's teaching them, one, that we're sinful 
He's teaching that he is perfect and holy and righteous in every way, but he's also teaching that he's gracious. Even though you're sinful and even though God's perfect, he says, I'm going to allow you to be close to me through this way that I've provided, through these sacrifices. And so you see that all the way through the Old Testament. And so when you start to consider how does that answer our problem of worrying about other people and what they think of us and the stress that comes with that and how all that goes together. I want you to think about what's at the root of that. When people talk about us, you know, a lot of times we know innately that we don't measure up. If we're really honest, right, even if I'm completely, totally uh, convinced that I didn't do anything wrong, I still know there's times when I have done things wrong. And I do know when people say something or do whatever or something in there, my conscience bears witness that, yeah, you probably could have done that better. Right? Have you ever had that? I, I say that all the time. I think, well, I answered that correctly and right. And then I walk off and I go, but man, I was really harsh. Right? And, and, I, and I can know that. I know that innately. My conscience bears witness that I don't measure up. And so we struggle with what other people think because we know that we're not perfect. We know that there are some just uh, things that people could level against us. And so when he says here, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in God, he's showing us so clearly that we don't measure up, but at the same time that God is gracious and that he can forgive us. And so when you see how David starts at the beginning, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. See how he says that? How is David righteous? Because of the God of my righteousness. It's because of God's righteousness for us. That's what he was showing us in sacrifices. I'm giving you a way that you can be near me even though you don't deserve it. I'm giving it to you in a gift so you trust what I've done for you. Now what David doesn't know and he doesn't completely see here when he's writing this is how all those sacrifices were pointing to the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus. Because when Jesus comes, he comes as the perfect sacrifice the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices so that we can come completely and totally with a clean conscience before God because of what he's done for us. And so when we start to look at this picture that's here, what we're seeing is that our righteousness is found only in God. We have to trust in the way that he's provided. But here's the wonderful truth when that happens. When you see that, that is the key that frees you from worrying about people's opinions. It worries, it frees you from saying, wait a second, what they're saying is wrong because you know the judge who judges justly knows all of it and he sees all of it and he's forgiven you and he's got you and he's forgiven you of so much and so you can then forgive other people. And he's done that for you. And so you start to see your righteousness is not based on what other people think of you. Your righteousness is not even based on how good of a person you think you are or you may not be. Your righteousness is completely and totally because of what God's done for you in Jesus and nothing else. And so that completely changes the whole thing. It changes the way you can relate to people. It changes the way people think of you and how you deal with that. And it frees you in that. Right? It, it, it frees you when you go back for a second and say people are talking poorly about you and it's because you've been a bonehead. <laughs> you've done a lot of really dumb, stupid things. And what they're saying is right. So how does this answer that? It answers it because you can realize, you can own up to your stuff. You can say, yes, I've made mistakes. 
and you can ask forgiveness because you've been freed of seeing that your worth is not based on people's opinion of you, but because the God of the universe has washed you completely clean in Jesus and nothing else. And so now when someone says, man, he's really this or that and they're right, I can go to them and go, you're absolutely right. I am messed up. And I make this mistake, and I make this mistake, and I do this. And the only way that I can stand up before God is because of Jesus and nothing else. And so I'm not worried anymore that, oh no, they're going to think I'm a bad person. Because my ultimate uh, worth doesn't come from what people think, but what, what God thinks and what he's done in Jesus. And so it completely changes all of it. And it leads you to these last two verses and what he says. Here's David crying out in distress. My honor is being turned to shame, but then look at how this ends. Verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Do you understand what he's saying? I have more joy than anything that can be found in the earth. Anything that you normally would get your self-worth from, I have something far greater and my joy abounds beyond all that. I don't need wealth. I don't know things that people would normally look at and go, what a great guy. Look at what he has and look at this and look at that. He says, I have a joy that's complete and total because I'm putting my trust in the Lord and what he's done for me. And so he has a joy that that comes over all circumstances and all things that are going on. And then look at the very last verse. In peace, I both lie down and sleep for you alone or O Lord, make me dwell in safety. One of the biggest things we're really struggling with stress and anxiety and what people think and oh I didn't make these people happy or I didn't do this or I didn't whatever it is can you lay down and sleep can you go before God and you confess your sins or you forgive people that have wronged you and you go I'm just going to go to sleep now right that's what David says I can lay down and sleep I lie down and sleep for you alone O Lord make me dwell in safety all that I have and all that I am is dependent on who God is and what he's done for me in Jesus and so I can rest I've been very, God has been so gracious to me in my life in that area. You can ask my wife, it frustrates her so much. I go to sleep in like 10 seconds, just about every night. Like I just, I hit the pillow and that's it, it's done. And, and, and it's not because of anything in me, it's because I'm trusting that who I am and my worth and all of it is Jesus and nothing else. And when we see that, it changes all those relationships. It changes the way we can rest. It changes the joy that we have, and it's not dependent on circumstances. That's the truth of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the great truths that are in your word, the way they deal directly with our heart, what we're dealing with and what we're struggling with. I thank you that our righteousness is dependent on what you've done for us and not ourselves. And I just thank you for that. I pray that you would help us to see this truth more clearly and more fully that you are the God that loves us, that you are the God that forgives us, that you are the God that keeps us. And it's not dependent on our works and our issues and the things that we've blown, but it's, it's on Jesus and Him alone. And we thank you for the great love that you've showed for us in coming and laying down your life. And we thank you for that. I pray that each of us here today as we leave, that we would rest in that truth, that there would be a joy that abounds above all else. There would be a rest as we lay down tonight that's just a complete and total in what you've done for us and nothing else. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.